Hello, friends. This is Rick Penner. Welcome to Nelson Covenant Church Online Sermons. Pastor Jeff has recently started a teaching series through the book of Revelation, and we are currently in the early section where Jesus is telling John to write a letter to each of the seven churches in Asia Minor. The last two weeks, Jeff taught on the letter to the church in Ephesus and to the church in Smyrna, and today I'll be continuing this series as we look at the letter to the church in Pergamum. But before we dive in, I'd like to talk a bit about the word compromise. What does it mean to compromise? And is it a good thing or a bad thing? According to Webster Dictionary, compromise is to blend qualities of two different things. Another definition is to accept standards lower than is desirable. And a third definition of compromise is an agreement that is reached by each side making a concession. Now, in some circumstances, compromise can definitely be a good thing. In marriage, it's good to compromise what I want with what my wife wants. Let me give you an example. Um, My ideal date is to have a delicious burger and fries, a a cold drink, and watching a football or a baseball game together. My wife's ideal date would be eating seafood, getting a chocolate cheesecake dessert, and just talking. So our ideal date night looks pretty different, but as a married couple, we learn to compromise each of our ideals for the other person. And in this sense, compromise is a good thing, uh, and it teaches me to be less self-centered. But then there's bad compromises. An example of bad compromise is, um, let's say I have the ideal of wanting to get in shape, and I know that I need to exercise, and I need to lay off on the junk food. And I'll admit, I'm great at compromising here. (laughs) I will gladly go work out and be physically active, but then I will equally as gladly eat an entire party-sized bag of sweet chili heat Doritos. (laughs) Uh, Another example is students. If you want to do well in school and get a good GPA, you can't compromise on studying. Or an addict who wants to be free from their addiction can't compromise their commitment to stay clean and sober. In order to live a life of integrity, we can't compromise on the values and morals that we want to live by. And in our spiritual lives, the Apostle Paul says that having a strong faith is great, but to compromise your faith by not having any love is useless. Pastor Jeff talked about that being the sin of the church in Ephesus a couple of weeks ago. Right? They had a strong, dutiful faith, but they lacked love. And today we're going to continue in the book of Revelation and look at the letter to the church in Pergamum in chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And as you'll notice, Pergamum had a bit of the opposite problem of Ephesus. We assume here that love wasn't an issue here, but we're going to see how some within the church compromised their beliefs and their integrity to live out their Christian faith. So let's read Revelation 2, 12 through 17. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. 
There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. All right, let's unpack this text. I want to make a brief mention about the structure of these letters to the seven churches. Each letter has essentially the same structure uh, that you may have already picked up on. First, they open with an address to the angel of that church, and then we get a descriptor of Jesus. This description is always connected with the main message for that given church. So, for example, in Ephesus, it said, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. To Smyrna, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. And to the church in Pergamum, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. Second, each letter has a section of approval and of criticism. And it's marked by the words, I know. To Ephesus, I know your deeds and your hard works. To Smyrna, I know your afflictions and your poverty. And to Pergamum, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. It's interesting, only two of the seven churches don't receive any praise, and two others don't receive any criticism. The rest receive both. Third, we have the section of a command that is tied to either an encouragement, a rebuke, or a promise of Christ's presence and approval. And fourth, each letter ends with a closing phrase that says, Let everyone who has ears hear, along with a word of promise and encouragement to those who are victorious in keeping the faith. All right, that's just a bit of structure for how these letters are are written. With that in mind, let's walk through today's text, starting in verse 12. To the church of Pergamum, Jesus is introduced as the one who has the sharp, double-edged sword. What does this mean? Well, the sword in Rome was a symbol of power and authority. It was a symbol that meant you had the power to issue life or death as a judge. So Caesar wielded a sword. And it was deemed that Um, or if it was deemed that a criminal deserved capital punishment, they would often be taken to Rome. Unless, of course, Rome gave a governor what was called the right of the sword. That is, the right to carry out capital punishment in their own city or province. So governors with the right of the sword, they could demand complete obedience and allegiance, or else issue capital punishment themselves to any citizen that didn't obey them. Pergamum was one of those cities that had the right of the sword. It was the capital city in Asia Minor, which is uh, present-day Turkey. And it was a center for politics. One commentator says, If Ephesus was like the New York of the ancient world, then Pergamum was like Washington, D.C. 
It was a highly favored and loved city by Rome, famous for having a magnificent library of over 200,000 scrolls. It was loyal to Rome and loyal to Caesar. In fact, Pergamum is said to have been the first city in Asia that had a temple dedicated to the worship of a living emperor. They literally worshipped Caesar as God, or as a god among many. This city was a symbol of authority both visually as it sat high on top of a hilltop overlooking a large valley, and politically brandishing their right of the sword. So it is very fitting that Jesus is introduced as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword. Because it may appear to the people as though Caesar has ultimate control, as though Caesar has authority, but Jesus is saying that he is the one with ultimate authority. Verse 13, he says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. (coughs) Yikes, (laughs) that sounds dark. What does it mean to live where Satan has his throne? Commentators have a variety of opinions on this. See, While Pergamum was a political center, it was also a highly religious center. They were known as the keepers of the temples in Asia. At the high point of the city was an impressive temple to the Greek god Zeus, with an altar that looked like a giant throne. There was also the temple to the Greek god of healing, Asclepius, which had as its symbol a serpent. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that it often refers to Satan as a serpent. So perhaps these temples came to mind when Christians heard the phrase throne of Satan. But to add to that, Pergamum also had a temple to the Greek goddess of wisdom and protection, Athena. Or if you just wanted to have a good time, you'd go worship the god Dionysus, who was the god of wine, fertility, pleasure, and festivity. And As already was mentioned, Pergamum was the first city in Asia to have a temple dedicated to worshipping Caesar. Caesar was lord here. The pantheon of Greek gods was at home here. The image we should get is that Pergamum was not a hospitable place to be a Christian. You know, unless Jesus was just another deity you worshipped alongside all these other gods. But... That is simply incompatible with Christianity because Jesus makes an exclusive claim to being Lord. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say he is a way or a part of the truth or one version of life. No, Jesus makes an exclusive claim to being God. So to be a follower of Jesus by definition means you reject any other gods, you would have to reject the claim that Caesar is Lord. To be a Christian in Pergamum would make you stick out like a sore thumb. It was truly a territory where Satan would feel quite at home, as the ethos of this city was antithetical to Christ. And yet, in this unlikely place, there was a church, and Jesus sees them And he gets it. He knows they live in an incredibly difficult place to be a Christian. The coming suffering and persecution that Smyrna was warned about is already taking place in Pergamum. 
Verse 13, one of their own by the name of Antipas was already martyred here for his faith in Jesus. And despite seeing one of their own executed for his faith, they did not renounce Jesus. That is admirable. Jesus commends them for that and says with empathy, I know where you live. You are in enemy territory. I know it's not an easy place to be my disciple. And I want to pause on something in this verse because Jesus doesn't just mention Antipas, but he gives him an honorable designation. What does he call him? It says, my faithful witness. This, this really struck me as it had me thinking about my own mortality. Now, <laughs> excuse me, the likelihood of you or I being martyred for our faith in our context may not be very high, but regardless of how we die at some point, I am reminded that at some point we will. And it caused me to pause and wonder, how will others remember me? More importantly, what will the words of Jesus be about my life? What would he say about yours? I think of the ways that we remember people like Martin Luther King Jr. or Mother Teresa or more recently Ravi Zacharias. None of these people were uh, none of these people were perfect, but they are remembered for their faith, for their love and service to others, for standing up for what's right. I hope that as we move through our life, we aim to be people to whom Jesus can one day say, welcome my faithful witness. Now, I don't for a second pretend to believe that this kind of life is possible out of my own strength. But by God's grace and his spirit transforming us daily. The church in Pergamum, they've done well to resist the pressures from outside to renounce their faith. However, from the inside, there are some who are compromising their faith. And we're talking about the bad kind of compromise here. Verse 14, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There were some within the church who held to false teachings. Now, the reference to Balaam is from the Old Testament, and it is a story you can find in Numbers 22 to 31. And in this story, the people of Israel <clears throat> had left Egypt. They were on their way through the desert to take possession of the land God promised them. And as they encountered enemies along the way, God protected them and gave them victory over the attacks of, of enemies. They eventually got to a place called Moab, and news of the Israelites reached Balak, the king of Moab. Balak heard of how God had protected Israel, and he became fearful. So what does he do? Well, he hires a pagan prophet named Balaam to come and put a curse on Israel. However, God does not allow Balaam to put a curse on Israel. 
Nevertheless, enticed by the money offered to him by the king, Balaam suggests a tactic that might remove God's protection from Israel. He teaches the king that if he can lead Israel astray and get them to compromise their faith, then maybe God would remove his protection from them so that Moab could attack Israel. So how can you get someone to compromise their integrity? Bait them with money, sex, or power, right? (laughs) Not much has changed since then. So Balak sent Moabite women into the Israelite camps to seduce the men to sleep with them and eat food sacrificed to the Moabite idols. And this is exactly what happened. King Balak sends the honey trap. Israelite men give in and compromise their faith by engaging in sexual immorality and in honoring pagan idols. This is the story that Jesus is referring to here in the letter to the church in Pergamum. Some within that church were compromising their faith by listening to a teaching that led them to eating food sacrificed to these Greco-Roman gods and engaging in sexual immorality. We need to understand that this sin was not just giving in to temptation to go eat some kind of forbidden chicken wings at a strip club. There was a lot more pressure at stake here. If you wanted to fit into society, if you wanted the benefits and blessings of the government, if you wanted your business to flourish, then partaking in these pagan religious festivities were a way for you to gain acceptance and recognition. So if you were a Christian and you wanted to gain some traction in your community, compromising your faith to some extent would have had a very strong pull. I think that this desire for influence and acceptance and material benefits continues to have a big pull on us today in 2020. Are we willing to compromise an element of our faith to get these things? Verse 15. Likewise, there are some who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. So the question is, were the teachings of Balaam and those of the Nicolaitans the same thing, or were they different? Commentators are not sure, as we really don't have much information on who the Nicolaitans were outside of a few mentions here in Revelation. It is quite likely that these false teachings were very similar, but not identical. According to uh, early church fathers, Tertullian and Irenaeus, it appears as though the Nicolaitans were some sort of pseudo-Christian Gnostic group. In other words, their teaching probably sounded Christian-ish, as they would have borrowed a lot of Christian language about grace, salvation, freedom, but then twisted it in order to blend in with pagan religion and, and culture. One could then imagine that their teaching would sound permissive and lax, and maybe something like this. Of course we believe in Jesus, and we don't really believe in these other gods, but because of our freedom in Christ, surely it's not a big deal if we join in on some of these festivals to other idols. It's not like we actually believe in them. We just just go through the motions to fit in here. Or maybe someone might say, you know, it's really only our soul that will be resurrected one day. That's the part that God really cares about. 
What we do in our fallen, broken, sinful bodies doesn't really affect our soul. After all, didn't the, the Apostle Paul say, where sin abounds, grace abounds more? Or another person might say, freedom in Christ. We worship Jesus, but, you know, in order to, to do well in this society, we have to blend in and do certain things and join in on these other religious festivities. So the point is that both the teachings of Balaam and those of the Nicolaitans were false teachings that led Christians to compromise their faith. And to this, Jesus has a stern and urgent word. Verse 16, repent, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Turn away from the teachings that trick you into compromising your faith. Don't listen to teachings that kind of sound biblical and Christian-ish, but are actually not. Don't water down the call of being a disciple of Jesus with, it's okay to blend in with sinful practices of the world. Yes, Christians are in the world, and we are to love our non-Christian neighbors. We are to be a blessing to our communities. We should be good citizens, and above all, we should be known by non-Christians for our love. We are in this world and we are to live faithfully in it, but we are not of the world. In other words, as Christians, we should not blend in with the ways of thinking or living that are contrary to the word of God. Christians are to stand out in the world, not in a pretentious way, not in a judgmental, rigid, legalistic way, and unfortunately, that has happened too often. But we are to stand out in a good way. Jesus says in the Gospels, you are the salt of the earth, right? Salt stands out in food. It brings flavor to it. It makes bland food come alive. But Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's, it's no good. Or another example Jesus says is, you are the light of the world. We are to be like a light in dark places, a beacon of hope and truth and life. But if we simply hide that light, it doesn't really have a purpose. So these compromising Christians are called to repent. That just means to turn around, to change their ways. And if they do not, Jesus warns them that he will just, he won't just stand by idly. He will come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. He will not allow these compromisers to continue leading his church astray. And this imagery of the sword of his mouth, it reminds me of, um, of a few other passages in the Bible, particularly Hebrews 4 verse 12. It says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. As I spent some time in this text <clears throat> over the last week and a bit, I reflected on my own life and, and I spent some time in prayer asking God to help me see where I might be subtly or maybe not so subtly compromising my faith. Because... Compromise is not just a temptation of the church in Pergamum. I believe it's a temptation for us too. Now, maybe it looks quite different now than it did in Pergamum. 
Maybe it looks different for me than it does for you, but the temptation to compromise our faith and allegiance to Jesus is there today just as it was 2,000 plus years ago. Would we have the humility to take a look at our own lives and ask God to show us in what ways am I being too tolerant of ideas, of choices, and practices that are leading me astray? How might I try to justify a lax discipleship? Or how might I be trying to blend the priorities of God's kingdom with the priorities that the world dictates I should have? How am I tempted to compromise my faith? How are you? The bait to compromise, it's always going to look enticing, I believe. It will always seek to downplay. It will always try to justify itself. It might even sound Christian-ish. Here are some examples of what I think the temptation to compromise might sound like. It can't be that bad. Everyone's doing it. Or, I know that's what Jesus said, but that's not how life operates in 2020. Or, God will understand. He knows I'm in a tough spot. Jesus is great, but, you know, maybe other spiritual paths can also lead me to greater enlightenment. Or, just do whatever makes you happy. Jesus wants you to be happy. Or maybe, you know, I'm I'm a pretty good Christian. Jesus is Lord of a good 80% of my life. That's pretty good, right? I just I just want to hold on and be in charge of this one area of my life. I don't I don't really want to surrender this one area of my life. Surely God can understand that. Or, you know, I go to church, I tithe, and I'm honest. God can't really expect me to have an active concern for creation care and justice for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized. That's that that's what our government is for, right? The invitation to compromise has many different voices. The Ephesian church was praised for not tolerating ideas that would lead them astray, but they lacked love. And in Pergamum, The church had the opposite problem. They had become too tolerant of ideologies and sinful practices in order to fit in and blend in. And this was affecting their witness and leading them away from Jesus. By compromising, they were becoming like salt that loses its saltiness or a light that is hidden. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. This message is not only for the church of Pergamum, but it is for all who want to listen to what the Spirit says. That means it's also for us. The word of encouragement and promise at the end of this letter is this, to the one who is victorious, meaning to those who do repent and to those who do not compromise their faith, Jesus will give some of the hidden manna. Now, what does that mean? Well, in the book of Exodus, 
Israel left Egypt and wandered through through the desert. And in this desolate place, God provided for them with manna, this bread from heaven. I can imagine that going through the desert for 40 years would be hard. But God provided for Israel's needs. He provided nourishment for their journey. And these Christians in Pergamum no doubt had a difficult life of discipleship. Not worshiping Caesar may have meant death for them. Not partaking in the sinful festivals of the pagan gods may mean you'd get rejected and disadvantaged in that society. But Jesus promises that he will provide his church with nourishment and strength for the journey of faith. He will also give that person a white stone with a new secret name on it. Now, commentators don't know exactly what this means. There's a lot of different um, plausible interpretations. However, one of the ones that seem the most plausible says that it was common to issue white stones in that culture as uh, tickets of admission. If you wanted to go to a banquet or a concert or a special um, athletic event, you would be issued a white stone. That was your ticket to get in. To get a white stone from Jesus then reminds us that when Christ will return, there will be a great wedding feast, the banquet of Christ, and those who keep the faith will have a seat at his table. They're going to be admitted to join this great feast. Jesus is saying, times may be tough, but keep your eyes on the prize. Don't compromise your faith. I will give you strength to make it through and a great reward is awaiting you. So what does it mean to get a new name? Well, a name back then uh, probably carries more value than it does today. A name back then carried with it your character. It gave you value and a sense of identity. So you can imagine if you didn't partake in worshiping Caesar or engaging in cultic practices and festivities, you were likely seen as a nobody. Your name was associated with being a nobody. Society gave you a label. And culture then and culture now tries to put labels on everyone and assign you an identity. But Jesus gives us a new name. It is in him that we find our true identity and our true value. We see this play throughout scripture. After receiving a promise from God, Abraham, or sorry, Abram, was given the new name of Abraham. Jacob, after wrestling with God's angel, was given the new name Israel. Simon, after encountering Jesus, was given the name Peter. And Saul went from persecutor to Christ follower and received his new name, Paul. Antipas was executed as being unfaithful to Rome, but Jesus gives him a new name and calls him his faithful witness. Take comfort and be encouraged that our identity is in Christ. He gives the faithful a new name. So to close, friends of Nelson Covenant, I invite you to take an an inventory of your own life. Ask God to bring to light the areas in which you might be prone to compromising your faith, both personally and as a church community. Where have you taken the bait 
that is leading you away from Jesus, who is the way and the truth and the life. Allow the Spirit to reveal those areas to you, and may you and I respond to Jesus' call to turn away from compromising our faith, to turn away from blending the gospel with lesser things, to turn away from trying to run after both God's kingdom and the world's kingdom. Would we lean into the promises of Jesus? Trust that he will give you nourishment for your journey, regardless of the trials that we may face. Take encouragement that your value and identity is secured in Christ and that he has a seat for you at his table. Would we acknowledge the one who really has authority over our life? And would we live in such a way where at the end of our days, Jesus can say, welcome my faithful witness. Amen.